Good morning, church family. Good morning. I'm going to begin with a story that the late pastor and writer Eugene Peterson told about walking in Yellowstone Park with his family. Peterson recounts this. As my family and I were walking in a mountain meadow in Yellowstone Park, there was a little boy, four or five years old, 30 yards out in the meadow, picking exquisite alpine flowers. It is against the rules to pick flowers in national parks. I was outraged. I yelled at him, don't pick those flowers. He just stood wide-eyed, uh, innocent, and terrified. He dropped the flowers and started crying. You can imagine what happened next. My wife and children, my children especially, were all over me. Daddy, what you did was far worse than what he did. He was just picking a few flowers, and you yelled, you scared him, you ruined him. He's probably going to need counseling when he's 40 years old. <laughs> My children were right, right. You cannot yell people into holiness. You cannot terrify people into the sacred. My yelling was far worse, a far worse violation of the holy place than his picking a few flowers. Later, I had plenty of opportunity to reflect on this, reminded, as I frequently was, by my children. I do a lot, bluster, I do that a lot. I bluster, yell on behalf of God's holy presence instead of taking off my shoes myself, kneeling on holy ground, and inviting whoever happens to be around to join with me. He added, if we begin by identifying needs, tackling a necessary job, launching a program, we reduce the reality that is before us to what we can do. He concludes, rather, everything we do in the Christian life must begin with adoration and worship of God. And that is our topic today, adoration and worship of God being our primary focus as believers in him, as his children. In Matthew chapter 6, which is where we are today, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 or turn them on. If you're using a Bible in the chair in front of you, it's page 781. Please open your Bibles as we're going to go verse by verse through these. If you need a bulletin, sermon notes, announcements, raise your hand, and Mr. Rager will put one in there. Thanks, Chris. Matthew chapter 26, first 16 verses where we'll be today. There are so many great things happening at Community Grace right now. I want to thank you for being a part of them. So many great things. We've been traveling verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew for over a year now, and we're nearing the end. And I want you to rejoice with me the way the schedule works out with our calendar. Uh, we're going to end up with the crucifixion text on Good Friday and the resurrection text on Easter Sunday. Isn't that cool? That's going to be a great conclusion to our journey through Matthew, and we're all looking forward to spring, aren't we? It's, oh, it keeps teasing us. So as you turn to Matthew chapter 26, we're going to see in these first 16 verses four different responses to the cross of Christ as we prepare, as we head to the end of Holy Week. We are treading on some of the most holy ground in Scripture today as we're nearing the cross. And here's a Holy Week chart to show us where we are as we're mapping out this final week of Jesus' life that leads up to the cross. We were in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 25. That was on Tuesday, and we're going to transition out of that to the preparations for the cross. 
Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead are the pinnacle moment, not just in the book of Matthew, but in all of the history of the universe that God has created and that we are a part right now. The cross was the point that all of history up to that point was looking forward to and that Jesus fulfilled. The cross now from here is the foundation of all the history that's happened since and is still yet to come that we are living out right now. So let's go back, meet Jesus in this text, and learn how to prepare for the cross. Because the cross is the source of salvation and is the determinant for your eternal destiny right now. And in the verses, first 16 verses of chapter 26, we begin preparing for the cross along with four different entities. And as we, as we look at these, we'll find that Matthew arranged his text in these verses not in chronological order, which is the order of the sequence of, of the order of events in, in which they happen. He puts them in logical order so he can have us look and examine these four different responses to the cross of Christ. And of course, we ask ourselves the most important question, which one are you? Which one will you be like? Preparation perspective number one of the four that we need to examine as we examine our lives is Jesus himself. Jesus prepares for the cross. Jesus sovereignly prepares for grace is what we'll see. Now, as you're looking in your Bible, between chapters 25 and 26, Matthew turns his reader from the Olivet Discourse uh, which we've just studied the last three weeks, and it's been a very special season, where Jesus is foretelling his future glory. And that was a sweet season to examine all those things, and just the way he said, to look and long for his return, and there's a crown of righteousness waiting for us when we do. And it transforms our life now as we look forward to his return. But now you'll see this transition from his future glory to what he says about his first required suffering. Verses 1 and 2, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, the entire Olivet Discourse, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified, preparing for the cross. Now Jesus may not have known the day or the hour, like he said, not even the Son of Man knows the day or the hour where he'll, when he'll come back, only the Father did, but Jesus in his humanity did not know that day or hour. But he did know that before he comes back as king of kings to rule over all heavens and on earth, all nations, judging all nations, bringing us to heaven, that before he got there, there was a cross before his crown, and there would be death before his resurrection that earns us life. He says, in two days, the Passover is coming. I will be delivered up to be crucified. What is the Passover? Let me make sure that everybody knows. We're going to talk about it much more in the coming weeks and even tonight when we come back here in this room for our threefold communion service. The Passover was the biggest celebration in Israel's calendar year. It was the biggest holiday, like we might say Christmas is ours. 1,500 years before this, God had rescued Israel out of bondage, slavery in the nation of Egypt. And he rescued them in miraculous ways. And then when they were set free, heading towards the promised land, God instituted the Passover. The Passover to sacrifice. Every Jewish home would sacrifice the spotless lamb 
in commemoration for God's deliverance of them. And for 1,500 years, every Jewish home did that. All the way up until this point. And right now, at this moment, it's two days before Friday, the Passover meal, in Jerusalem, when hundreds of thousands of Passover lambs would be slaughtered in two days, on Friday, on Passover. The estimate is 250,000 lambs would be slaughtered, and the blood would drain down through the pipes into the Kidron Valley mixed with water. And they would realize there in just a couple days that for 1,500 years, all those slaying of Passover lambs was to be fulfilled in Jesus, the final Passover lamb, as his blood flowed mingled with water on the cross to give us all the opportunity to be free from bondage of every kind, free to eternal life in Jesus' sacrifice. The celebration of Passover had always pointed to this. Listen to the apostles as they identify that. John the Baptist, first of all, had recognized this in John 1.29 when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said that about Jesus as he walked up to him. The Lamb of God. The apostle Paul would say, 1 Corinthians 5, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. And the apostle Peter proclaimed, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. As the Apostle John saw in Revelation 5.12, all of us here, this is still in the future, around the throne, he sees this revelation, he sees us all saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This was the lamb of God to take away all of our sin yours and mine, if we'll accept him. The time had come now, and Jesus willingly obeyed his Father for us, providing not just our salvation, but an example to follow of obedience to God. Jesus willingly obeyed all the way to the end and says, follow my example. And that is what God is telling you to do to repent and believe in Jesus unto eternal life and follow Jesus with every part of our life. Now the question is, will we obey the Father? Will we follow Christ? That's his response. And again, tonight on the, in the threefold communion service, which I really in, invite you to come. You can see in the bulletin there's instructions what, what food to bring, if you want to bring any food at all. But definitely just bring yourself uh, back here. And we're going to unfold this very thing, this Passover meal which Jesus transformed in his Last Supper. We'll get to those texts soon into Christian communion, and we get to do that tonight. What a powerful worship that is together. Now, while Jesus' foretelling of his very soon crucifixion still hangs in the air, and they're pondering this, Matthew at verse 3, you'll notice as you look in your Bible, suddenly cuts to a room inside the high priest's home, and we are dropped into the middle of a conspiracy in motion. And here we see the second type of response that people have to the cross of Christ. Is this your response? That is number two, spiritual enemies prepare for attack. Here's what happens. Under Satan's influence, Caiaphas, the high priest, is the leader of those spiritual enemies of God who would set out to protect their own power and their own interests and reject Christ. Verses 3 through 5, let's see where this picks up. Profile number 2. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, 
and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And here we have a group of people who had rejected Jesus. They were their own gods, and they have violence on their mind. They gathered and they plotted. At first, you see, they gathered and they plotted to, to kidnap him by the stealth of night and kill him right away. But they reasoned, no, if, if we get busted doing that, that won't work with all these crowds gathered in the city for the Passover festival. That would be a bad idea. It could start a riot. You have to remember, just the Sunday before, Jesus rode into the city on a donkey. And what were all those crowds of people doing? They were yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. They thought he was going to overthrow the Romans and be their savior from the Romans. No, it's too much right now. We can't risk a riot. Now, we know that they reasoned that to avoid a riot. But God was sovereignly in control as well. And to kidnap him earlier in the week and kill him would not be according to God's plan. God's plan was that Jesus would die on the Passover on Friday. This group of plotting men represent all those who have kept God at a distance, scoffing, hating, resisting, disbelieving Jesus and his people. They want to silence Jesus and his people. They want to drag Jesus' name in the mud. And they better watch out because if they don't repent and turn to Christ, they'll end up on the wrong side of God in the end. Though anyone can humble themselves, Right now, repent and be forgiven and be saved and live. And some Pharisees did that. Some Pharisees turned to Christ and believed in him, and we'll see them in heaven. But those who did not have been in hell ever since, rejecting God, Jesus, his Savior, our Savior. If you still have breath, it's not too late to call on Jesus as your Savior. I hope you'll do it today. For all who humbly turn to him and receive him, we are, set, we are set free. The exodus out of Egypt, bondage and slavery, was a picture all along that we have been set free from all bondage into eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, our response to that, being set free, is to worship and adore our Savior, our God, the only one who's worthy of our worship, the only one. And that is how we see figure number three, prepare for the cross, Right now, perspective number three that Matthew gives us here is devoted worshipers prepare for love. Matthew now in verse six, as you're looking, he's going to flash back four days. So we're going out of chronological order. We're going four days prior to this on a Saturday to contrast, and he does this to contrast the third response to the cross with the one that comes right before it and the one that comes right after it so we can choose which way we're going to respond to Jesus Christ. In the Apostle John's account of the gospel in chapter 12, we learn that this figure, this woman that we're going to read about is Mary. Mary, that is Martha's sister and Lazarus's sister. They are good friends of Jesus. This is where each night of Holy Week, Jesus and his disciples spend the night just outside the city of Jerusalem in the village of Bethany. And this is a flashback to the Saturday before when they're in the home of Simon the leper, who the best guess is that that's probably a leper that Jesus healed because otherwise lepers don't throw house parties. So pick up with me in verse 9, and we see a powerful example of how we should respond in worship 
to the cross of Christ as devoted worshipers. Verse 6, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Let's see what we have here. Who is this Mary? Mary had given uh, attention to Christ before. Remember in the account of Mary and Martha, that's a well-known story. Martha's buzzing all around the house while Mary is sitting and listening, just being with Jesus. And Jesus commended her for that. And now it seems like she understands the significance of Jesus' soon death better than the 12 disciples. She recognized that in his tragic death is her redemption, her life. And so she demonstrates a radical act of measureless love for Jesus. She poured out this incredibly expensive perfume on him. The Gospel of Mark says it's valued at a, at a year of wages. How much money do you make in a year? Would that be a hit financially? This was an act of pouring out her soul in worship of Jesus. Being absolutely devoted to worshiping him, she lost all care of economics and restraint or embarrassment. She just gave all in worship, and Jesus commends her for this. Let's notice two things about Mary's worshipful response. First, when worshiping God took her priority, you notice she didn't care about embarrassment, what everybody else would think. She worshiped God in front of everyone else, and Jesus praised her for that. Second, she gave a very expensive gift. And sometimes when God's people give sacrificially, other onlookers, it's often in your own family, will look and say, you gave how much to the church? Man, what a waste. You could have bought a car or something with that. Just don't get it. Jesus' own 12 disciples were the ones asking that this time. Why this waste? And that shows us I believe that we all need to check our hearts. We can be far from true worship of God at any time, just like the 12 were right then. If the 12 didn't even grasp devoted worship, sacrificial love for God in that moment, doesn't that mean that we can miss it too? That's a constant battle. Lord, make us worshipers of yours like Mary in this moment. Now notice what they said. I want to clarify this. This could have been given to the poor. First of all, it's noteworthy that this was, according to the Apostle John, in John 12, 4 and 5, he identifies that it was Judas Iscariot that said this and that led all the rest of the 12 to believe this. What a waste this, this worship act is. Judas was the betrayer, the embezzler, the hypocrite, non-believer among them who stirred up the rest of the 12 to respond this way. But Jesus still calls out the whole 12 for responding this way towards Mary. For not seeing the spiritual depth of the cross and worshiping him accordingly as Mary did. Let's look at verses 10 and 11, what Jesus said. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. <laughs> They're like, Ooh, oh, oh, whoops. Verse 11, For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Let's get a few things straight here. First of all, this may sound at just first glance that Jesus is callous to the poor. Does, he, does Jesus not care about the poor? 
Of course not. Of course he cares about the poor. If you were here last week or just glance up at the end of chapter 25, it ends with the parable of the sheep and the goats where Jesus graphically illustrated that serving the poor is literally serving me. And it's essential to our genuine faith in following Christ to be all about serving the poor. But learn this from Mary and Jesus, what they're saying right here. He, at that point, was very soon to suffer and die and rise and leave and ascend into heaven. And see what Jesus says next about Mary's act of worship. An even deeper level, he calls this out. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. So he shows us here that there is a time for both sacrificial worship, giving, being totally consumed just by worshiping him. There's a time, there are times for that. They're critical. And there is a time, the times for worshipful, loving, sacrificial service to others. And Mary gets this. This is why I'm so grateful for the vision statement that God laid on our leadership's heart over a year's process of praying and researching and wordsmithing and listening to God. What is the vision? As, as we're successful in our mission to glorify God by being Christ followers, to make Christ followers, what is that going to look like? What do we pursue? How do we organize our, our schedule and our priorities? And this is the three-statement vision that... God led us to, and I just love it more and more as time goes on with it. Notice that these three statements that hopefully you're becoming well acquainted with these days are not just individual and disconnected. It's a progression here. This is what Mary gets, and we all need to get today. It begins with worship the king. That's who we are. That's, that's the whole reason Jesus came and set us free, so that we would be worshipers of him. He's worthy. He's the only one worthy. But that pours out into maturing as we become more like Jesus, as we know the word better, as we grow spiritually, and we can't do that alone, and so we do that as a family. And then therefore, that pours us out into the world on Jesus' mission as we engage the world, as we serve the poor sacrificially, and the fatherless, and the orphan, and the prisoner, and the stranger. As we plant gospel seeds everywhere we go, because everyone, rich or poor, that doesn't know Christ is lost and condemned before a holy God right now and struggling to find meaning in life that they can't ever seem to find no matter what. We have the privilege to pour out as worshipers, growing in Christ, engaging the world for Jesus, proclaiming, sharing, inviting them to come here and join us. Amen? This is an exciting progression. This is what we're seeing here. Mary gets this. The disciples... Hopefully they get it. I think eventually they do. The worshiper who is not like Mary will keep asking, how much is it going to cost? Uh, do I have the time? Will I be embarrassed? But the worshiper like Mary will give all. Give Jesus everything that he asks us to give, knowing that whatever it is, it's going to be tiny in comparison to what Jesus has given us. We worship God. A great application to the church I read this week is from Ann Ortland's book called Up With Worship. Just listen to how she kind of paraphrases this scene here in that room. She writes, Mary broke her vase. Broke it? How shocking. How controversial. Was everybody doing it? 
Was it a vase-breaking party? No, she did it all by herself. What happened then? The obvious. All the contents were forever released. She could never have her precious nard to herself again. The need for Christians everywhere, nobody is exempt, is to be broken. The vase has to be smashed. Christians have to let out their life. It will fill the room with sweetness, and the congregation will all be broken shards mingling together for the first time. If you know one another as broken people, you're ready to get on as a church. It's beautiful. Community Grace, we want to be a place. We want to follow the example of Mary, Mary's worship right here. Jesus so highly regards her model of worship, her example. Look what he does next. He makes Mary's example to represent all of Jesus' worshipers to come and to speak to us all. Verse 13, he said, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And indeed, everyone who reads the Bible, billions of people since then in the last 2,000 years have read her account and her example for us of how to worship Jesus the King. And now the scene shifts to one final and fourth perspective here in preparing for the cross. In this sweet aroma-filled room, you can see the camera panning across the faces of these shocked and convicted disciples until it gets to the last one, the shifty eyes of Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, who's fuming at Jesus' words here. And this, in his response, we see the fourth and final way that some people prepare and respond to the cross. Number four, hypocrites prepare for apostasy. Let me define those terms. A hypocrite is someone who claims to have moral standards or beliefs, but then acts totally differently in reality. Someone who says one thing and, and does another. They appear one way on the outside, but inside they are totally different. Hypocrite. Apostasy is turning away from God. It's falling away from your faith. It's rejecting God in the end. Now, how do hypocrites prepare, prepare and respond to the cross of Christ? Allow Judas Iscariot to show us. Starting in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Here's the fourth way people respond to Jesus, to the cross that saves us. He didn't believe. He went instead to the chief priests, probably while they were still meeting in Caiaphas' house. And to the scheming high priest, that was certainly a welcome surprise. Wow, look at this. One of Jesus' own disciples is coming in to betray him to us. That's amazing. We can get him now. So they count out 30 pieces of silver to pay him. That's the price of a slave from Exodus 21. And Judas, for that price, had sold out his teacher, leader, friend, but most of all, the one who had come to offer him his salvation. With a heart that only increasingly hardened, Judas went from there, and from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus, to be killed. 
What happened? How did that happen? For three years, Judas was part of the 12 that traveled. He had heard all the stories. He knew what was happening inside that nobody else on the outside knew. He knew all the songs. He saw all the miracles. He prayed all the prayers. And yet he proved to be a hypocrite, a fraud. How did that happen? Let me ask, is that you? Everyone thinks that you're a Christian right now, a worshiper, but you know better inside. Well, here's how that could be you right now. Here's how. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Notice how secret Judas was. Nobody knew. The disciples had no idea what was going on in his hardened heart of rejecting Christ. He chose his, oh, his, himself to be his idol, his God. No one knew what was going on in his heart. No one could tell, and he didn't deal with it. And it led him all the way to apostasy, totally rejecting God, betraying him. That doesn't have to be you. It doesn't have to be you anymore. If you have a sick heart today in any way, has been rejecting Jesus in any way from being a full-on worshiper, obeyer of him, follower of him, through and through, hear these words from James 5.16. This is an instruction how to overcome this hardened heart that's rejecting God. James writes, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And we want to give you that opportunity today. We've had some extra prayer opportunities in our church these last couple weeks, and they have been fruitful and wonderful. Any kind of talk about revival is a call to repentance, and that's something we need all the time. What are you, what's in your heart making it hard right now? If your heart is sick in any way today, we want you to be healed and this tells us how. And so after the end of this service, we're going to ask some of the elders to come up and be available for prayer. And I want to encourage you, whatever it is, I'll say a little bit more when we, when we wrap up after we sing. Do James 5.16 with your church family today and be healed. Have your heart, sick, hardened heart, restored, cleaned, brought to life. This might be the day that you trust Jesus as your Savior and live eternally right now, today, or be restored with him. For next steps, let's review the four scenes once again, the four different types of preparation for the cross that Matthew so perfectly arranged in order so that we can contemplate this. Where are we right now? Number one was the Jesus who gave us an example, the ultimate example of sacrifice. Greater love has no one than this. The man lays down his life for his friends, and he did that horrifyingly and willingly for us in all of humility. Awesome. We follow Jesus' example. The second profile here were the self-serving scoffers who did not want to give up their own self-interests. The chief priests and the elders, the outsiders, the critics, the enemies. The third was Mary who lived out this radical example of worship and love, wholehearted worship and love to Christ that we must follow because he's worthy of it. And then number four, meanwhile, is the one who never deals with the sickness in their heart. 
just doesn't deal with it. It doesn't get better. It gets worse and harder and further away until you've totally apostatized, totally reject Christ. Would you do business with God today? Pray. Let us pray with you. I'll say more after we sing. I've done this recently in the last couple weeks, and I am pumped up, and I want you to be as well, okay? Come and pray with one of our elders that will come up at the end of the service. Let me close in prayer right now, and then we're going to go right on into our song and a closing time of prayer. That's how we're going to end today. Lord, before we transition into the beautiful music, gives an opportunity to search our soul and worship you and then respond. Lord, I pray that you'll prepare every single heart here today to have this little short prayer meeting at the end of the service to be healed, to be revived, to walk with you once again, to see your hand at work. I pray that you'll do that, that your spirit does a great work here today as we close. In Jesus' name, amen.